It's flat out RC time. Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia, talking all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast. If you have been listening for a while, thanks a lot. If you're new to this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe now. Click that button uh, and make sure you do not miss any episode of the Flat Out RC podcast. We've got a big one for you today. Uh, Now, if you were listening last week, I think at the very end, if I can recall, I mentioned that we're going to be talking aerobatics, but we're not. Uh, Special guest this week is Alexis Scott, uh, known down here in this neck of the woods as a glider guy. But we will be talking all about his aero modeling, which does also go beyond gliding as well. So good story to come. So stay tuned for that. Now, before we get to the guest, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. Well, down here in Australia, we're back at it again. We have COVID lockdown season happening Uh Melbourne's in lockdown as I speak. Sydney is in lockdown. I think Queensland's just coming out of lockdown. South Australia, I think, has got some restrictions around travel as well. Uh, WA and Northern Territory seem to be okay, but we are in lockdown. And I think the way the numbers are looking, we'll be in lockdown for a little bit longer, especially poor people up in New South Wales. So that means that there's nothing else to do besides, say, getting on the sim. Having a flight or building, and I'm back. I pulled the plane out and started building a new plane. Now, if you've been following on the Flat Out RC Instagram, you would have seen a whole bunch of uh, uh, stories, Instagram stories on the build. So I'm sort of documenting it as I go. So what I'm building is a 3D Hobby Shop 75 inch extra 330 LT. Now this model is, I used to be the 3D Hobby Shop uh, dealer in Australia. Um, prior to the merger of Extreme Flight and 3D Hobby Shop. And uh, I kept a few models. And my favorite all-time scheme on any aeroplane is the scheme on the 3D Hobby Shop 75-inch or 108-inch extra 330 LT. I saw the prototypes of, you know, photos of the prototype. And as soon as I saw it, I, I said to myself, I've got to have one of these now. An Aussie, Aaron Bate, who does reside in the US now, designed that scheme when he was doing a lot of work with 3D Hobby Shop, and it is great. Uh, My favorite colors on aerobatic models are red, white, and blue. A bright red, a bright blue, and a bright white always helps, Uh, and it's exactly what it is. Really classic lines um, for an aerobatic plane, nothing too outlandish, like stars and stripes and things like that, but... uh, I've got the 108-inch extra, and now I've got the 75-inch extra that I had sitting in a box for a long time for a rainy day, and I'm reshuffling a few planes around, deciding what I really want to have, and this 30cc extra has come off the shelf. But for the first time, I am building a larger electric model, so it's going to be electric. And I decided that it's going to be a 12S LiPo setup only for the reasons that I already had some batteries. So it's going to have way too much power that I need. But uh, I've had a look on YouTube and there's other samples of that model running on 12S. Uh, and so it should be fine. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to getting that in the air. I've got a Dual Sky GA4000 motor. So it's almost like a 40cc motor. Uh, 
a dual sky 120 amp summit esc and then dual sky servos all around as i put in one of my instagram stories i'm not sponsored by dual sky i do know the owner and he's a lovely guy but i pay for all the gear myself and uh, i chose dual sky because i just think they're good value for money i've been to the factory i've seen how they make stuff so i trust their stuff and uh it's top-notch stuff. Their motors are phenomenal. Oh, look, I can't speak more highly about the Dual Sky motors. Never had a problem with any of them. And nobody that I know has ever had a problem with a Dual Sky motor. So I've got the big GA4000, which is a, which is a work of art, really. Uh, so looking forward to getting that up in the air. And thanks to lockdowns, it's going really well. Uh, one weekend down, and I've pretty much got all the control surfaces in, all the wings are done, stabs, rudder, elevator servos all in, and the motor mounted. So all I've got now is I, I decided not to put the undercarriage on first. Often I do, but I've left the undercarriage off because I don't have a shed or anything like that. My garage is full of a tra- with a trailer, and it's cold here at the moment, so I wanted to build it inside the house, which I know many of you are saying, well, what did the missus say? Well, she was okay. We're in lockdown. She knew that I wanted to build this plane, so it's been okay. But uh, it's gone together really well. I only have to put undercarriage on uh, and then do the um, I put the motor on. I've got to put the ESC on, so I'll probably do the ESC next, and then I'll do the motor. Uh, sorry, then I'll do the undercarriage, and the cowl, and the uh, spinner and the prop, which I've just ordered. Desert Aircraft Australia just got my order for a new prop and spinner. Um, going to run a twenty-one by ten prop. I wanted to run a twenty-one by twelve, but they didn't have any, so I'll just try the twenty-one by ten, which should be fine. Don't, don't visit any problems with that. Um, should be pulling about 90 amps uh, through the ESC. So I've got a bit of headroom there. Still deciding on battery connectors to use. I've got some that I've bought that can handle pretty high amps. So I might run those. But not much to do. But I'm going to put the prop and the, and the undercarriage on. I just need to work out where am I going to put my receiver, receiver batteries. I'll run, run a redundant system there. And then I'll run the two two lipos i've got various sizes i've got two like a 4400 size 6s and then i've got a smaller one as well but um the small one's probably going to fly better because the plane will be lighter that's always a good thing so i'm very very excited i'm in the building mood i don't i don't really enjoy building at this stage of my life i'm always feels if it just gets in the way of the flying and other things that i want to do uh but i i know that once i get into it i i'm i, I do enjoy it uh, it's just getting started and not having a dedicated building area is just a pain because I have to pull everything out that I need that I want to use and then put it away after I finished. I suppose I need a bigger house or a nice, actually what I really would like is a warehouse. If anyone's got a spare warehouse for me, they want to give to me, I'll take that. But that's what I've been doing in the past weekend and a few more weekends to go and it will be done. And then hopefully by then, out of lockdown, off to the field. Guest time, my favourite time of the podcast. And I do try to mix up the guests here at Flat Out RC. I, I don't often have, say, an aerobatics person followed by another aerobatics person. And, and this week, I, I've broken the trend and I've had another glider guy on. I know we spoke gliders not too, too long ago. But anyway, uh, this time... I I know I knew of a guy on Facebook. We were Facebook friends, Alexis Scott. We, his son Hamish has been on the podcast. His son Hamish is one of Australia's best three D heli pilots, and he's also good at flying planes as well and RC cars. And you name it, he's pretty good at it. But uh, Alexis is uh, Hamish's dad, and Alexis 
comes from South Australia in Adelaide, has a long history in the hobby. His father uh, was in the hobby and, and got him involved. So it's a bit of a, a father-son, a grandfather-father-son sort of combination. But uh, Alexis's father was known in the hobby. He ran a magazine. They had a, uh, Alexis had a hobby shop at one point in time. Uh, but I know him as a scale glider guy. You could say glider guy in general, but he does enjoy scale gliders and uh, he's got a lot of stories to tell. So stay tuned. It's a big one, uh, but you'll enjoy it. So over to my chat with the glider guy, Alexa Scott. I've said this before, but there's many people that I want to have on the Flat Out RC podcast that I've had on my my guest list for a long time. And we have another one of those gentlemen, so I'm ticking another box, and that is Alexis Scott all the way from South Australia. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's an honour. Well, we've had... Uh We've had your son on Hamish, and we'll talk a bit about Hamish before the uh, the one of Australia's best RC heli guys. But uh, you have a long history in aero modelling, and and a very very active and avid aero modeller. Where did your journey in aero modelling begin? I think I always put my initial start in the hobby. It's it's probably my first memory. Um, there there are, there are two first memories really. One of them is living in Sydney as a young lad. Um, and I'm talking sub four years old. Probably one of my earliest memories was Dad, Mike O'Reilly's father, Leo, uh, at a an oval or a park in Sydney, flying Griffin flying wings off of a bungee. Um, and that's you know that's sort of probably the first memory of any sort of aero modelling that I have. But the one that I think is where I started myself was probably. Loxton Nationals, and I think that was about 73, so I was five or six, something like that, and I flew indoor chuck glider, and I I miss that. I actually miss indoor flying. It, it was something that I loved until, probably until I started my career in my late teens. If, if there was an indoor flying event on for free flight or radio, I was there. You know, if I could get there, I was there. And, and that was my first taste at doing things competitively as well. I mean, I, I, I flew in the Nationals as a junior and then I flew uh, indoor free flight chuck glider as a junior for a long, long time. And, yeah, that, that's sort of where I started. Um, as far as radio flying, um, Dad was already flying radio, as I said, when I was quite young. But he his um, history goes back to control line. He, he actually started flying in 1950, about five kilometres from where I am right now, here in the hills in Adelaide. Um, there was an oval uh, just near his house where he lived in Mount Barker. There was a, a circular common. And he and some of his mates and a name that old school modellers will uh, know from the control line circles, a man called Brian Hammond, um, lived in the same area and they set up a thing called the Adelaide uh, Mount Barker Modellers Club and that's that's where dad started um, sorry I was not Hammond sorry I was Laurie Middleton I had that wrong uh, yeah Laurie Middleton was also another well-known Australian control line modeler and that's who introduced dad to era modeling at sort of 10 years of age um, so yeah as I said dad, dad flew control line control line stunt which I Used to love going and watching control line stunt. I own a couple of control liners. 
I can't say I'm a competent control line hmm. flyer, but I can do it. I, it's one of my dreams is to be able to fly a, a, a control line stunt pattern. Um, maybe not well, but I'd love to just be able to do it. Um, and and also in that history thing, I mean, I love going back and I love seeing the people from my childhood are still flying control line stunt now, uh, Reg Tau, Paul Turner, all those sort of iconic names in the game are still doing it You know, 50 years later. I think that's says something about what they're doing and their passion for it. Oh, the first time I saw someone sort of fly a control line stunt plane, I was just amazed. It was just mind-bogglingly good. You're just sitting there going, how are they doing that? Because I, mean, yeah. I always saw control line as just you fly around in circles and that's about it. And literally for, for my entire life, that's what I thought it was. You just fly around in circles and, you know, but then when I saw this guy that was sort of doing like figure of eights and going, planes going back on itself and around, I'm thinking, no, that is just, that is just crazy. And I remember a friend, friend of mine was with me at the time and we just had to stop and look and think this is just the skill level involved. So I've never, I've never tried control line, but maybe one day, still plenty of time. Yeah, e- even with all of Dad's experiences through the hobby, you know, from one end to the other, he did everything. Uh, in his later years, I asked him what it was that he felt the attraction to control line was because he always still had a passion for it sort of right to the end. And he said, there is no other part of the hobby where you are physically connected to the aeroplane and you you get actual feedback from the aeroplane. If the lines are going loose, you feel it in your hand. If it's windy, you feel it through your arm, through your body. Everything that you're doing, there is actually a connection to it, um, which which I thought was interesting. I, I know my dabbling in control line. I get what he's saying. Uh, it's um, I don't I don't accept people's criticism that it's two dimensional or anything like that. It's it's just a different part of the hobby. It's something that I think you know. Give it a go. <laughs> it's it's really good fun. I want to take yeah. you back though. You were talking about yeah. the um, indoor competitive flying way back then. Yeah. What were the numbers like? In that era, as far you know, if you went to a competition, how many people would be there with their indoor um, you know, models? Gee whiz. Here in South Australia, look, I've got an old photograph somewhere that was taken, and we used to have um, probably, you know, it wasn't unusual to say 15, 20 juniors, and, you know, maybe the same in, in adult um, at an event. There was a lot more focus on. There was the competition side of it for sure, but there was also this focus on building the um, the fun aspects. I mean, the photo that I'm thinking of, what they did was you remember the you know I suppose nowadays they'd be five dollars, but back then they were probably a dollar. Um, Gillos or Pacific Balsa slipped together sleek streaks and skeeters and all those sorts of things. You know, either rubber powered or free flight gliders that came in a little plastic sleeve what they used to do is put a row of those out in the middle of the indoor gymnasium and line up all the kids on the other side and it was like a Le Mans start and all the kids had to run from the side of the stadium out to the middle, get the model open, get it built and then fly it and so the winner was the one that got the longest flight as quickly as possible Um, and then they probably got to keep that and another model or you know a little certificate that said you won the, the sleep street competition on that event and those sorts of things I think are, are missing. I think yes the hobby has to compete with the electronic generation and all that sort of stuff but the 
the the older generation, I believe, have sort of forgotten how to how to have a lot of that fun, and maybe it's my generation don't um, promote it as much as we should or could. It's one of those situations. I see I see it in other hobbies. You know, like many many moons ago, I raced go karts, and mm. when I was racing go karts, it was. It was very controlled, and and that kept the prices down, and it was fun. So, for example, if it rained, no, you didn't have rain tires. You had to pump your slick tires up and get a bit of a curve on them, and so you cut through the water as best you could, and you'd slip and slide around the track. And then yep. everything became more professional. Now you had data loggers in the carts, and now you could have, you know, the wet tires. And it got to a point nowadays that it is not uncommon for a state level go karter's parents to spend sixty to eighty thousand dollars a year on go karting and have ten engines, one that you use for qualifying because it's great for qualifying, another. And what ended up happening is it, it basically started to kill itself. It's like people, parents are going, "Well, this is just stupid. It's so expensive now. It's not fun anymore because it's too serious." And I think we're seeing that, you know, you raise an interesting point. You've either got a fun fly kind of event or a serious competition. There's nothing that's sort of, and a fun fly event is really just a get together for people to go flying, but there's no, nothing within those events that is just pure fun. There is, I don't know whether you've got a competition over there in South Australia. Here we have one that the VMAA run, which is like a, a um, a club versus club competition and there's different categories like they'll do a limbo and they'll do a, a glider comp and and it's just fun kind of stuff so i suppose that's that is one thing that they do but they run something like that in south australia yeah those well they they those sort of things used to be really big i mean i remember going to a lot of those things with dad as a kid again and and they used to have a mug of the day event you know prizes for the person that actually destroyed a model trying to do those sorts of things which you know you weren't encouraged to destroy the model but it took away some of the pain of losing a model just trying to have a bit of fun in a in a comp. The here in South Australia, um, Massa has just started an inter club uh, competition like that. I think very much like the Vans one, um, the one. Sorry. Mm. Um, and what I see is that there's a there's like uh, chapters of it. So there's a southern chapter and a northern chapter and that sort of thing. Um, haven't been able to get to one to myself, but I think. That's a really good place to start. Um, my personal feeling is it's a little bit preaching to the converted. Uh, I think from a, uh, a longevity of the hobby, we need to be a bit more proactive of those sorts of events. If they were seen by the public, would be even better. I think if the public was encouraged to come along and see people just having fun doing it, not, not just flying it, but actually being encouraged in the fun they're having, I think that might help draw more people into the hobby as well because it's there's I think uh, I don't know the way the polite way to put it but there, there's there's a bit of a an element of we do have to compete with that new generation there's lots of stuff to compete with but I don't think that's a reason that we should be losing new people you know and there was there was always something like as you mentioned go karts you know I mean. That, that was always something that could compete with aero modelling uh, as a hobby. May, maybe um, the price of go-karts has changed that and it's not the same market of people. I'm not really sure, but I, I'd like to see more, more more fun spent trying to get people into the hobby. You know, The key word there that you said is we preach to the converted a lot. And, and mm. it's something that I've talked about directly with the likes of MAAA. Um, 
and they know where I sit on this because I gave them a marketing proposal which basically focused mm. on stop preaching to the converted. We get it. We don't need a wingspan magazine that costs a fortune to produce because we're there and we can grab content in various different ways, whether it be through social media, YouTube, podcasts, you know, you can still buy, you know, English magazines if you want. There's various ways that we can get our fix. But yeah. if I was going to be running that show, I would be spending all my money on promoting the hobby to a new audience, you know, via uh, the one, likes one of, of yeah, yeah, like with the yeah. likes of Facebook and stuff like that. And as, I had this chat with actually uh, one of your mates, Mike O'Reilly, over there in South Australia yeah. when I went to visit him, and we're driving yeah. past, you know. You know, uh, you know, one of the flying clubs, he dropped in on the way down to his office and uh, said, hey, oh, we fly here and whatever. And I said, you know, we were talking about this concept that we just need to put the hobby in front of more eyes and run events and things like that. And we had a good chat about that. And so there's, a, there's a few of us that are, are very, very like-minded and uh, yeah, get tired of the, oh, what do we need to do discussions? Like, well, we know what we need to do. Let's just go and do it, you know. That's why I love events. I love, I love public events and displays. Um, that invite the public to come and have a look and ex- see it and experience it and that kind of thing. That's it's a, a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, that that club that you're talking about, I'm pretty sure I know which one it is. And it's interesting if I say to people that don't know me, you know, from outside of the hobby, you know, that I fly model airplanes, the instant answer that you get here in Adelaide is, oh, is that at that club? And it's amazing that Adelaide... And when you say to people, well, actually... I do fly there. That's where my dad was a member for a long time. But it's it's not actually my club. I said we have a club at you know there's one at Malang, there's one at Strathalbyn. They're they're everywhere, all over the state. And people go, oh, I didn't know that. Yes. And that that to me is huge. When you think about how much land and what where we're not none of the clubs here in Adelaide. Well, not none. A lot of the clubs here in Adelaide are not more than five minutes from the nearest town, and people don't know they exist. And and I. I find that incredible that, you know, we're just not seen. Um, and I, you know, I think that needs to be fixed. I, don't, yeah, I think Control Line used to help that. I mean, yes. Dad used to fly demos at um, Guy Fawkes Night here in Adelaide. You know, so before the fireworks came on, um, Dad would quite often do a stunt demo. And then uh, on a number of occasions, he also flew Control Line Pulse Jet, which you know what oh, pulse jets do, they, yeah, they draw a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- that to me is the stuff that's missing and it, and it doesn't need to be the uh, elite stuff, it just needs to be the stuff that grabs people's attention and says, you know, here's something else you could be doing with your spare time. True. It's interesting mm-hmm. that I, I put a lot of the success or the growth of the hobby in the realm of control liners. I think that mm-hmm. if you think about it back then, you would a kid would get a control line plane, they'd go to the local park, the local school grounds or whatever, and they'd just fly it. And whilst they were there, because kids went to parks and kicked footies and did all that kind of stuff back then, little Johnny would see, you know, uh, Paul with his brand new control line plane, run home and say to his parents, I want that for my birthday. Right? Cause, so they saw somebody else doing it, which then excited them to want to go and have a go at that as well. So they ended up getting one somehow, whatever. And that's why we see a lot of the people that have been in the hobby for a long time started in control line back then in that era. And I put yeah. it down to the fact that it was done at the local park where a lot of eyeballs saw it. That is the mm. proof in the pudding. That is how the hobby sort of grew here in Australia is other people saw it. And there was no internet and all that kind of stuff. Um, and even in the internet, you only see it if you look for it. 
unless you interrupt it through advertising where you pay to get the attention, that was the crux of my my push to the MAAA is you need to advertise this to a new audience and put it in front of them, whether they like it or not, and you never know. What about that move to RC? Um, yeah. What was that shift like and what, what brought that along? Okay, so I was it, – it's funny you mentioned Mike. Um, my very first radio model uh, – actually, I'll go back a fraction further. We'll go, we'll go back, say, I think – I'm trying to think. Dad probably started uh, flying radio in the early 70s and I started flying radio – late 70s, mid to late 70s, I suppose. Now, Dad's first radio model was a glider that he bought from Mike's father. Um, I think he bought the radio from Leo as well, uh, a model called a Kerwee, which if anybody's listening and knows where to find a Kerwee, I'd love to, I'd love to mm-hmm. replace Dad because um, I'm a sentimental bloke. But I started flying radio with a sawbirdie. You know, and, and most people would know a sawbirdie. It's like your gentle lady, two-meter, generic, rudder elevator model. And as a real side note to that, I bought one secondhand yesterday because I bought <laughs> a bunch of old gliders. And when I got there and the guy said, oh, you can have all of these in this deal, and there was a sawbirdie in it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's fantastic. You know, hey, that's... They didn't have any uh, Southern Sailplanes models there, did they? No, they were actually all um, – there was two – Breedy models. So there was the saw birdie and the big birdie. Um, there was the the main reason that I wanted to buy the bundle was it was a Mike O'Reilly designed model called a Europa, which was based on one of the German Rolf Decker designs from the I think mid eighties, um, or maybe even early eighties. Um, but early F three B competition model. Um, I had one myself about nearly thirty years ago and sentimental me again saw this thing and went I can't say no to that I, I have to have it and um, it just adds to the list of things to build so I, I started myself in that transition from free flight to radio and I skipped the control line other than dad did have a, uh, a Snoopy on a flying saucer as a control line model as when I was a very young lad that I think he always said it was mine but I don't think I ever flew it I, I probably just enjoyed watching him fly it but my introduction to gliding was you know it was a two channel it was where i started i had to pay dad back for the radio i think that my first radio was probably dad's second radio and i had to mow the lawns and earn it um and in the process of that uh he and i built my saw birdie and we were members of the southern soaring league back then i mean the southern soaring league dad was one of the very early forming members of that with mike and others um And the Southern Soaring League has always had a very good um, ethos into fun competition as well as serious competition as well as being the hub of model gliding in South Australia. So back then it was a regular thing to be able to, again, the the numbers were probably in the the club events. You might have seen 20 people at a club event fairly regularly um, and bigger ones as well where they were, some of them were uh, thermal events run to the FAI rules and then some of them were events run to local rules. Um, and so there was that that competition element. But I think the, the actual single part of getting into RC and something that encouraged me a lot, and it, it seems to be a bit of a theme in this chat, is in encouragement and promotion. But the League of Silent Flight, um, Dad was one of the early... Uh, people to 
achieve the high levels in the LSF achievement program and he was always keen for me to continue with that and do, you know, you start out as an aspirant where you have to do, um, it's all changed a bit now, but back then you had to do a, a 15 minute thermal flight, I think there was a half an hour slope soaring flight and all of these achievements you had to have signed off by an independent person so you had to go and do them, um, it built your skills but you didn't have to have the latest and greatest equipment to be able to go and better yourself. You could just take your model out, go to the slope, go to the field, launch on the bungee, and if you, example, you could you could spot land. Um, some of the early requirements were just to be able to spot land within a, I think it was a 15 metre circle in those days, and if somebody else could verify that you'd done them, they got ticked off as part of your um, achievement program. Again, I think it's just another part of the encouragement stuff that there is that aside from the um, what you were talking about that, that mentality of I don't necessarily want to grow the hobby there's a, there's another side of it which I don't know the answer to maybe you do on this one but that is people are afraid of competition or there's sort of two there's two kinds of people there's those that are so hectic in their day-to-day -day life that competition is the last thing they want to do and then there's the other extreme, and, and I think in the middle is missing. I, I think the healthy, fun competition that builds people's skills without sheep stations helps to build enthusiasm. I think it, I know that when SSL was doing it and other clubs, when, when these fun events were run, people would um, go and build new models for it. You know, they'd say, oh, did you know that there's a fun fly coming up and they're going to have a maximum loops in three minutes as an, you know, so guys would go and spend 50 bucks on Balsa and, and build a very simple model that all it was designed to do was be able to do lots and lots of loops and if they crashed it, well, they didn't care. That, that's another side that has changed. I mean, the ARF world has changed that um, for better or for worse. I, I, don't, I don't have an opinion um, or something. I don't have an opinion that matters <laughs> on that. I, I, I love to build myself, but I own ARFs. So... I don't have a, a negative or a positive. It's to me, it's just another part of the hobby today. Um, for new people coming in, um, I do believe that we get a lot more new people because of the ARF. I think the the negative feeling that sometimes put out there about them doesn't help those people stay in the hobby longer. I think there are people that that come in with an ARF that might be wanting more out of the hobby. And they're they're not encouraged to do that. Not encouraged to look at all the other aspects of you know can I build it? Can I you know they? I mean, I go to a lot of scale rally and fun fly type events, and I've been to some where I've been the only person flying a model that wasn't an ARF, and I go wow that's it's not bad, but it's really interesting when you've been in the hobby that long to sort of look along the flight line and go. All these people here call themselves scale modelers, but are they? You know. <laughs> yeah, but my local club down here in Victoria, they actually run an event just for kit building, um, uh, scratch build uh, models. Um, yep. and, and they try their best to promote it, but the reality is not many people turn up because we just don't see that sheer number of people like like we used to do. And I think part of it's because we have that choice now. We do have the choice to buy an ARF. If we didn't have that choice, you would all be building from kits and, and things like that. 
you know, the problem is that we aero models are crazy. I mean, one model's never enough. We need another one. So it's accessible to go and buy an ARF. We go, oh, well, it's ARF. I've got some gear. We'll just put it in there. It'll be up and running. And off we go. But- yeah. Look, look. My, my, my best mates and I, we all joke that we're not going to live long enough to finish the bucket list. That's a, <laughs> that, that's a guarantee. Yeah. You know? But I, that, that's good. You know, I, I love aero mm. modelers because mm. we're all like-minded. Is that we're tinkerers. That I always say to people, I'm not going to be bored when I retire. No, no. in hell. I, I can't wait to retire and, and really throw myself into building. But the good thing is there's a lot of younger people that are still, you know, I've had a few on the podcast, you know, Peter Goff and uh, those guys in New South Wales, a bit of a movement. They're all younger guys that are really, really into into their building. So yeah, it's, I, I it's actually, not dead. I've, enjoy, I've enjoyed all of those. I, I really liked um, Anthony Ogles the other day. Oh, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I really, really, it put a smile on my face when I heard him talking about the fact that he can build a, a world champs model, and that's one set of thinking. But then, uh, like he was using the bulldog as the example, as it was an aeroplane that he's always wanted to build, but it's not being built at a competition, you know, standard or what he considers a competition standard. You know, it's being built because he wanted to do it, and it's what he sort of calls sports scale. And I just think that's fantastic because. People get the wrong idea about scale modelers as well, that they're all sort of rivet counting, um, you know, and that's not right. There, there, there are scale modelers, and I was thrilled just to hear that he has that uh, ability as well to pick and choose how he's going to do each model, and, you know, that's um, – it's a good one. It's just a good um, feeling, you know, that you don't have to be absolutely invested to that world champ scale level mm. and just still enjoy the model i'll tell you what i've seen since since recording that podcast i've seen some of his posts on facebook with the updates of that build and it is looking phenomenal it is just oh, and, and you know what yeah. the speed at which he's going i'm thinking oh man you can you can do this well like it'd take me months to get to where he, he is but uh yeah no that was uh, that, that group of guys they've all been lovely and just mm. so passionate about it as well you know and you know, we we bag younger people sometimes and think that they're not interested in this kind of stuff. And okay, they're not they're sort of virgin or middle aged men. Some of them, you know, probably in their thirties and stuff like that. But um, but still, yeah, that passion that they have, and that they've got that motivation from each other as well. You know that yeah. they're they're all like you were saying earlier. You know, I used to say to people when I was selling model planes many moons ago, people would buy model planes after they went to the flying field. Like if they weren't mm. able to get to the flying field because of weather, they weren't interested in buying anything. They'd go to an event, they'd see these great models, they'd be all G'd up and the next minute they'd want to go and spend money to, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, when we go on holidays and then we leave that holiday and thinking on that last day, we think, what will we do differently? Or maybe we need a bigger caravan and maybe we need to do this. And, and, you, mm-hmm. and you come home and you start spending money on, on you know, the next experience, even though, you know, I always say, give it a month and you'll probably forget about it and save yourself a lot of money. But um, yeah. that's just what happens. Yeah. That sort of leads me to a point that I saw the other day on Facebook with a, a gentleman, I'd say a, a long-term modeler from what I could gather, who said that he... It was interesting because he worded it, I thought, in a uh, in a thoughtful manner, and and he said that was he the only person who loved building, loved flying, but felt that after the test flight, that was sort of the job done a bit. He, you know, he he felt that once the test flight was done and he was comfortable with the model, 
he was ready to move on to the next thing. And and I understood where he was coming from. It's a uh, there's a big there's a big adrenaline rush when you're a builder, particularly. Um, you've got a lot of yourself invested in it, and and when you do that first test flight, the rush that you get from that, you never get that rush from that model again. And what I was astounded about is that that thread's probably been going for over a week, and it's into the hundreds of responses, and they are polar opposites. There are some people that are saying, mate, you just need to get out of the hobby because you're not getting a thrill out of it anymore. And I thought, well, no, this guy's actually opened up and said something quite honest and real. Leave him alone. You know, I think that's it is only his opinion and he was expressing it and wanting to hear what others thought. It went from that level right through to a lot of people saying, yeah, I don't think I've ever actually said that before, but that, that's actually true. I think and, it's true. It's, it's yeah. true. It's a we are tinkerers, and what we love is the, the thinking process, the researching, you know, what servos should we buy? How long do the leads need to be? Which batteries should I use? Where's the CG? It, it keeps us occupied in the hobby mm. versus just flying the thing around circuits or whatever that yeah. I can, I, I, from my own experience, you know, it was funny when I, I got into to motorbikes, you know, a year or so ago, and... I felt gutted once I'd bought everything that I needed because I really, <laughs> which sounds terrible. I spent way too much money on stuff. It's safety gear and all that kind of stuff. I loved the process of research of what should I get? What boots should I get? What helmet should I get? What bike should I buy? And all that. And once I got to the end of that road, I went, oh, now what? Oh, now I've got to ride it. Oh, okay. It was like, I really, really enjoyed that process. And I think there's a lot of aero modelers that like that process of of researching and that's why we end up buying another model like if mm. if it was so if we if anybody out there that thinks this guy's being negative well guess what analyze yourself do you only own one model yeah. no, no no anybody that owns one model because we see something else and we we fall in love with the concept of having that and owning that and flying that and we go and get it so you know, if anybody's telling that guy to give up he obviously doesn't love it well just shut up no. that's right I'll, I'll give you a lovely example of what you just said, one that I've recounted a few times, but um, you you may have seen the pictures of my third-scale Piper Cub. Yep. Right, well, the, gen the gentleman that started that was actually a customer of mine when I owned a hobby shop, and he was a man who is a, a fairly international note in the um, vintage motorcycle world. He has built, well, he built the bike that holds the um, historic, lap record at Phillip Island. He's a, you know, a very, very well-respected man in that world. Um, been involved in motorcycles all his working life, you know, that's all he'd ever done. And I didn't know who he was, but he walked into my shop one day and he, he wandered around and uh, he came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a new hobby. I think this looks pretty good. Can I get into it? And we had a, a fairly generic conversation about what was attracting him to it. And he was a bit guarded you know he didn't say what his background was other than oh you know i play with motorbikes anyway to keep the story short he left that day with a, a 40 size trainer and a radio and a, a bottle of fuel and a nice starter and sort of all of the original basic 40 sized arf trainer package stuff you know and he said to me you know will you be able to point me in the right direction of a club where i can go and learn to fly and we had all of that what i think is very important stuff to make sure that people succeed in the hobby and he went away and he came back 
a day or two later, and he has a, a very, very dry wit, and he, and he walked in and he said, oh, you're a bugger, you are, you know, you lied to me. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you, you told me that I had everything I needed. I, I said, you do? I said, I can't think of anything you've missed. And he wandered around my shop and he started taking things off the wall and he says, would I need one of these one day? I said, maybe. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll have one of those. He said, you didn't sell me one of these flight boxes down here on the floor. I said, I'm not here to fleece you. I said, I'm here to get you into the hobby. And he picked up the flight box and he wandered around the shop a bit longer and he, he was just having fun with it. You know, like you said, he, there was that whole thrill of setting himself up in a new hobby and he walked around and he said, oh, what about this? You know, I reckon I might need one of these. I said, well, you, and he was buying things like razor planes and sanding blocks. And, and I said, you, you bought an ARF. You don't really need that just yet. No, no, no. I'll take it all now. You know? um, a week later, he came back and said, can you order me a Balsa USA third scale cub and the floats to go with it? <laughs> and I said, hmm, okay, <laughs> sure. Um, so, yeah, what you're saying about the joy of that whole experience, that's that's just another part of it, and you, and you were spot on. Um, I, I saw it a lot, but he was the one example of it that I just will never forget is he and I had a lot of fun. We became very close, you know, not just from a, a customer relationship, but, he, you know, he's somebody I consider as a friend now because of the hobby. Mm. Um, that's, that's true, you know. I've got to ask you more about the hobby shop. I'm going to ask you a bit later about two things. Mm. Dad's magazine and, and the hobby shop remind me. I'm going to come back to it. But yeah. the interesting point, like we're talking about, you know, none of us own one model. If we look at your hangar today, mm. what does it look like? <laughs> a <I'm>, mess. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I was about to say, and I don't want to, to, I want to say it's a mess because most of ours are a mess except for my friend Dominic who's he's just spotless. He's just, but he's anal. But, you know, but yeah. The, the way I justify my mess, and I'll just use the word justify, is I am limited in time. You know, we've got, we've had four kids. Uh, my wife and I both work. We've, uh, you know, our youngest one is still only in primary school. All of that sort of stuff's going on and I work funny hours. So when I work in, walk into my shed to build, that's what I'm here for. I'm not here to clean up and tidy up and pack stuff away. And um, usually what happens is it ends up in a state where I can't do it anymore. And I go, right, now it's time to do the big, the big cleanse. And I start again and I give you a big cleanse and away I go. Um, and it's usually, there's a, there's a few cycles that go with that in the, uh, when I, as I, an example, when I did the Cub, I did a huge amount of that over the course of about 12 months. And it was almost every day there would be at least an hour or two spent on it over 12 months, just working on it to get it done. Um, once that's done, it's not that you're sick of the hobby or burnt out or anything like that, but I always stop building, have a big clean, and I usually pick some small project to do, whether it's a free flight truck glider or a, um, a, a small park fly model or just something I do less serious, more more laid back. And so probably because of that pattern, if I, I'm sitting in my shed right now, if I look around from one side to the other, there's not too many aspects of the hobby missing. It's extremely eclectic. And probably the only thing that I've never got into, and purely 
think really it is just a money thing. I've never got into turbines. I I appreciate them. I love them. I love the smell of them. I, I know I couldn't afford to have um, a turbine at this stage. And if I and if I did, I don't think I could have the number of models that I have. So it's a I, I love to have this collection of things that when I want to go and do something different, I go. We're going to go slope soaring today. What am I going to take? Is it is it what conditions? You know, is it going to be blowing a gale? Shall I take a DS racer? Is it going to be light and floaty? You know, so it, to me, I, I I fly and build on a fairly tight budget, but I have a nice collection of stuff because I've uh, a lot of it I've built. I suppose that's the other part of it is I keep my expenses down because I don't I don't buy. Um, Things that limit my future by. <laughs> it's probably yeah. a simple way. To put it. Well, I, I've, I've posed this question a lot. When is too many too many? And I believe that most of us have too many. I was, I was I literally I, we talking off air before this. I just came back from the snow. I was just doing a little skiing today, and uh, I was on the chairlift talking to a friend of mine, and I said, oh, "I've got to get back tonight for a podcast recording. I'm looking forward to." It. And he said, "Hey," oh, and we're talking about. He knows I'm into the hobby and all that kind of stuff. He's he's been around it since I was there, and. Uh, doing it and um and i said to him you know what there is not one model plane or anything that i want to buy at this present point in time there's stuff that i like you know like the super cheap monk or whatever but at mm. this present point in time there is not one model that i would want to spend my money on because i've got everything and probably too many of everything uh and so i've been able to draw that line and say okay i have i have a model for every situation and I said even a radio control yacht. So that I've mm. covered everything from cars, yachts. I've still got cars and yacht with a yacht now and whatever. Yeah. But um, the interesting thing is, and this is a bit of a segue that I've just, just really thought of, is if there was one category of model that I'm looking forward to fly more than others, it's my gliders. I do, yeah. I do not. I said to my wife the other day. I rarely talk about aero modelling with my wife because she's really just not interested. And I said to her, you know what, if there was one form of competition that I'd like to participate in in the hobby, and that is gliding. And, mm. I, I, and I really thought about that over the last week and about, you know, why that is the case. And I, I just think that it's it's one of those kind of events that you turn up to where it's not a precision event like Patton and IMAC and some, some of the heli competition, stuff like that, where it's, can you perform these series of maneuvers? Now what I'm doing is I'm reading the environment and I've got 10 minutes to fly my, you know, F5J glider or whatever is it? Yeah. F5B or whatever. I can't remember. F5J, F5J glider, yep. um, you know, for that 10 minute period. And, and I said to my wife, you know, the thing I like about it is I might muck up in that 10 minute period. But guess mm -hmm. what? In about five minutes' time, I can have another go at it, you know, and I, I can live in hope. It would be like going fishing. Um, but so you're, I know you as mm. a glider guy. Yeah. Um, what drew you towards gliders? Um, okay, so it's where I started, as we went to before. So that's probably the first part of it. And you're right. There's a, there's a very purist feel about reading the air, um, uh, thermal hunting, all of that is is so attractive to me because it's a personal challenge. And I think I'm very, very social, but from a personal enjoyment, if I'm doing something, I like to challenge myself. So, I mean, I have flown pattern for the same reason because I see it as a challenge to yourself. But the gliding thing, I, I agree with you that 
um, flying against the elements or using the elements has a an even more um, sort of natural element to it, I suppose. There's something so attractive about it. Um, the other the other side to that is a, a little bit of selfishness, to be brutally honest. Um, there was a period of time in my model flying, and and my wife probably remembers this quite well, and a little bit like yourself. I don't I don't talk to my wife terribly much about flying because it's not her thing. But um, my, when my father ran a hobby shop, I would go with him to the flying field as a I mean I would finish work, he would finish work, and we would go to the flying field at least once a week together, and spend that whole flying session. Training people, teaching people, you know. He was in the hobby shop, so there was always this never-ending stream of people that wanted to learn to fly, and I was sort of co-opted in to help him with that process. And what happened was I got to exactly a year, where, and, and I remember it because it was a uh, like a daylight saving to daylight saving period. I got to the end of that year, and I came home and I unloaded my car, and I said to my wife, I need to reassess this. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I've now been flying every week, once a week for a year and not flown my aeroplane once. I've turned up, trained, had a great time, come home feeling like I've done really nice things with people. You know, I, I, I get a huge buzz from seeing people succeed and develop and all that sort of thing. But it makes you question, and it's a little bit like you were saying about the an aeroplane for every occasion, it made me question why I had a room full of models that I wasn't flying. It was like, I need to fix this situation. And so I actually sat back and I took a couple of weeks to really seriously assess what it was that I wanted to focus on. Because a year of training people was, was an accident. I didn't deliberately set out to do that. I enjoyed it and I have no regrets about doing it. But I, I also knew that it wasn't really why I was in the hobby. And the gliding thing came through, and, and I almost did it a bit like when, when you do a career assessment. I sort of looked at it and went, well, what, what could I do well? What haven't I never done before? What, you know? And the scale glider thing, I started remembering seeing scale gliders as a young lad, uh, particularly one that Cole Collier in Victoria, not Cole Collier, my golly, John Gottschalk built, which was a ASK 13. And there was pictures of me as a very young lad standing alongside it that Dad had taken, and that just drew me in. Then that you know, I always said as a kid, "Oh, one day I'll have something like that." So when I had that sort of moment of, I need to find an area of the hobby that I'm going to focus on, it it became scale gliders, and that would have been early '90s. And the truth is, I probably spent the best part of 10 years flying the occasional sports model, but the rest of the time all I was doing was building and concentrating on going aero towing, and I was aero towing once a week for a lot of that. Um, we had a group here that would go out to the full-size gliding club and aero tow until dark once a week, and then on Sundays we'd have one it's a month of that as well. Um, and and it, was a, it was an amazing tight-knit bunch of guys that we all welcomed new people in. We wanted more people to do it. We wanted it to grow. And because we were all going that direction, it, it self-perpetuated. We ended up you know, with a really good, solid band of people that 
yeah, after 11 or 12 years of doing it, we all had to go and do other things and that, that group's not as solid as it was, but lifetime friendships as well mm. made out of it. Um, so I, th I think the scale gliders particularly I, I got drawn to because it gave me everything that I wanted in one aspect of the hobby. I could, I can build an aerobatic scale glider. I've got aerobatic scale gliders. I can build a vintage scale glider because I love highly detailed things. I like things that have stitched ribs and, you know, fabric covering and that sort of detail. But I also love speed and slipperiness and all of that that comes with modern scale gliders. So to me, it, it ticked so many boxes in one aspect, whereas just about anything else that I thought about focusing on didn't tick enough of the boxes. You know, I, I love flying aerobatics, but for me to go competition aerobatic flying, it probably meant that I still had to have more sports models and, you know, you went out and practice. I'm just not one of those people that could only practice flying pattern and turn up at a pattern comp and just do that. You know, it's, but scale gliders I can because if I'm if I'm sick of flying a, I've got a, a moulded ASW 15, if I was sick of flying that, uh, I will grab out my 1930s vintage Raya vintage glider and go go hunting thermals you know it's there's always something different to do in the scale glider world I mean I've um, I've had motor gliders and I've got a third scale Grob 109 motor glider that I have to pick up and due to wonderful COVID it's sitting in Victoria but <laughs> I will I will get it and I will get it home and that'll be another aspect of just the scale glider world that it ticks another box for me so yeah, the, the attraction to gliders is probably the variety. It's it's the only se separate category that I think you can experience just about every single skill in in that one category. Um, and and yeah, and I like all of them. you know I really love every part of it. You know, down down to um, uh, little tiny. I've got whippets. I've got little tiny. You know, six hundred oh, yeah, span. Yeah. yeah, I've got a few of those. Um, G models. Um, there isn't an aspect of gliding that I don't love. There's not. There's not one part of it. Every, every part of it has some sort of interest for me. And I and I think I I look around at the things that have got dust on them, mm. and they are things like I've got a couple of Hobby King vampires. I love flying them. They're great fun, but they're still collecting dust. They don't. They don't get the love that the scale gliders do. You know, it's, um, well, there's something about like oh, like. Everybody's heard me say I'm into aerobatics and gliders. That's my two mm. things. Um, mm. But I've, recently I've been going through this phase of sort of thinking about, you know, if I had to choose one as a long-term sort of thing, what would it be? Mm. And I think that, yeah, whilst you're younger with aerobatics, it's not too bad. Whilst you've got, you know, still some reflexes and all that kind of stuff. But I think mm. from a longevity kind of po point of view, gliders is probably what I'd be interested in. If I had to... I hope my, my aerobatic mates aren't listening to this. But <laughs> if I really, if I, if someone said to me, you can only choose one category of models to fly for the rest of your life, I'd probably say gliders because I just mm. think that there's this, it, it's relaxing. Mm. Like when you fly aerobatics, well, the worst one I find is, you know, you, you've flown RC helis before, haven't you? Flying yeah. RC helis for me is just a nerve-wracking, stressful exercise. Love them. Lo love the look of them, you mm -hmm. know, all that kind of stuff. 
But for me, I have to think and concentrate so hard that it gets to a point where you go, I'm just not enjoying this because I'm supposed to be enjoying this, but I'm not because I'm so paranoid I'm going to stack this thing with one wrong move. It's all take one tiny wrong move, lose orientation, bang, it's gone to the ground. Um, mm. But with gliders, it's like, oh, yeah, I can fly that. That's relaxing, mm. though, when I go up to my holiday house and it's a nice day, especially if the weather's a bit warm and I think there might be some thermals around, I go and grab the glider. It's always the go-to on that kind of thing. So... I've hey. probably disappointed a lot of my friends by uh, by by, no. by saying that, but the, I think recently I've really been thinking about gliders more and more and more. I don't know why it's because I've interviewed a few glider people. Based, lately. based on what you just said, have you looked at the GPS racing? I well, okay. You're going to explain to us what GPS racing is because Peter Goldsmith mentioned GPS racing, but mm-hmm. what is it sounds like it's right up my alley, but what what is it exactly? I think, I think it would be right up your alley because, okay, so the the basic principle is actually quite simple, and I've got uh, a Pike um, set up as a, like an F5J model. It's got a dual sky electric motor in the front, um, full house composite glider, four meter composite glider. Um, the the basic principle is you're using a GPS app that's on a tablet or a phone that is either on a tripod or on your transmitter right next to you, and it talks to you. And it talks you around a predetermined course, which is a triangular course. There's there's two basic sizes, of course. I think one's 150 metres and the other one's, I think it's 500. I could be corrected on the sizes of the triangles. Um, but, but the object is that you launch and the app using modern telemetry, talking to your phone or your tablet, it tells you where the glider is in the air, where it is in relationship to that GPS three-point marks on your map, tells you whether you're in the course, out of the course that you're trying to fly around, and it it there is no way to cheat it, right? That's, that's one of the things I love. And you can go and do it on your own and compete with people all around the world purely by come home, plug your SD card from your phone into your app on your computer and say, this is the flights I did today. And those flights are calculated out and you get an international ranking of where you stand in the GPS racing world. So it doesn't matter where in the world you are, you can go and do something that challenges you against the weather conditions. And the course, and again, I'm not up with the rules. John Copeland is the man when it comes to GPS racing. He is pushing really hard to get more people into it. He was the one that encouraged me to have a go at it. He kept saying, Lex, you're going to love this. You really... And he's right. I know I will. Um, He's helped me set up the app and I've got it all working. I now just need to have good weather and get out and go with John to really learn how to drive the stuff. But when I say you can't cheat, you actually uh, fly over a start line, much like a yacht racing start line. So it's an imaginary line that is... Uh, straight out from you. So the, the triangular course, the furthest turn point, is straight out from the, where the pilot is standing. And then, but how uh, far away is that? Can you still see the glider? Yeah, you can still see it. So the two classes are, yeah, so the two basic classes are a sport class and a scale class. So the scale class, the models get, you know, five metre models still get small. You know, you really do have to be concentrating. Um but you could fly a sport glider around the scale size course, but you'd probably be starting to struggle to see it nicely. 
Um, whereas the sport size course, it's only 150 meters away at its furthest point. So that's the that's the triangle um, out from you, and you have to go over a start an imaginary start finish line, which is on the GPS, and you're not allowed to be again. You don't quote me, but we'll use the numbers as an example. Uh, 200 feet uh, above the ground and not more than about 60 kilometers an hour. So it means that you can't climb to a thousand feet and go diving through the start line and do a race around the, the course and go, well, I did the fastest lap. Um, it won't allow you to start the course outside of those parameters. So then the objective is to do as many laps of that triangular course within a set time and land back, not a spot landing, but within a designated area in front of you. And that's done because it's not about thumping models into the ground, it's about just remaining in control and not outlanding on the course somewhere because you've pushed for one more lap that you couldn't get. Um, and, the, and, the, and it talks to you just like your car GPS, you know, when you're heading to the first turn, it tells you whether you're inside or outside of the triangle. You know, and if you're outside, well, obviously, then you want to be creeping left to get yourself ready for that. Uh, what are we? Hundred or two hundred and something degree, two hundred seventy degree turn at at turn one. Um, and once you've achieved the turn, the GPS will say turn complete, head to turn two, and so you head off to turn two, and so on and so on, and you do that. And as an example, I think the sport class models' good numbers are in the sort of thirteen maybe a few more laps, and a scale model they're now up over 20 laps on a much, much bigger course. Um, and it's, obviously it's like full-size gliding in that if you want to do lots of laps, you've got to find the lift and you've got to work out what's the most efficient way to use that lift whilst you're in the course to get you from each of the, you know, around the laps. Because yeah, it, it might be a day where the whole sky's going up, so you can, you know, get in it and just go around the course and it's all very easy and you're back on the ground. But that, they're, they're very rare days. There's there's more likely that you're going to have to wander out of the course to get some more lift to get enough height to complete that next lap. And then on the next lap, the conditions have changed um, and now you've got to find lift or you've got to get some, you can turn that lift into speed and do another, you know, maybe a couple of quick laps because you've got good height in the first lap. So it's it's fantastic because it's tactical, but you're on your own. There's no, you've got nobody to blame but yourself if you get it wrong. You're not putting the model at risk because all you're doing is flying it around a big, you know, triangle in the air. It's, I think it's something that is just so appealing for for every reason. You know, it, you're challenging yourself. You're, you have to fly accurately, listening to the GPS. You know, it'll tell you left, right. It tells you what your altitude is. It tells you what your average speed is whilst you're on the course. It gives you all of that information, um, and it's not expensive. You know, the the initial gear was, and and I had to wait until the stuff came down in price before I said, right, pull the pin. I'm going to have a go at this. Um, but now I think you know, five hundred dollars plus the normal cost of owning the model, and you and you've got yourself GPS. Everybody's got an old phone, mobile phone sitting around. I mean, I'm just using an old Samsung Note eight. On a on a three D printed bracket that John made for me that holds my phone on my radio, and I can go. Um, and to me, five hundred bucks to go and be able to challenge yourself whenever you've got the spare time and not have to worry about oh when's the next competition going to be, 
you know, or gee, today's a good day. I wish there was a competition on. You know, you don't have to worry about that. You, you go, oh, today's a good day and I'm free. I'm going to go out and see if I can beat my last, you know, triangle GPS flight. Um, to me, it's, okay, it's not it's not the social aspect of the hobby but, that I love, but it's certainly the, the personal challenge side of it, I think. Yeah. It's just magnificent. That, that's a good point about that, the, the gliding. It's, it's a personal challenge, really. It's mm. just you and the model. There's no yep. sort of rules and regulations. It's just you and the environment and trying to make the most of it, which is, uh, which I suppose is, um, it's quite fascinating. Now, when it comes to gliders, mm. what have you? What currently are some of the gliders that you own? Mm. I suppose we, if I, st- so we, so we just work from small to big. That's probably I'm trying to. Think, I was yeah. trying to think of the simplest way to do it. So, uh, the smallest things I've got, I've got a little French flying wing called a Chocolatin, which was a, we bought a bunch of them, oh, we yes. saw them advertised, and um, a whole group of us went, let's let's do a group buy and buy them in from France. And now oh, they're a fabulous little thing, little laser cut kit. They take, you know, the average builder probably, if you're really slow and really fastidious, it probably takes a week. If you're uh, enthusiastic and gung-ho and... Uh, like myself and do things in a flurry. I mean, I've built two chocolatins and I did eat one in a night from the time I opened the packet to the time I went to bed at one or two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that size of model, I've got composite flying wings. I've got Gizmo. I've got, you might have seen, there's a local guy here in Adelaide that's been developing a model called the NRG wing, which he's been developing as a DS model. And he and I have spent many, many hours on the phone talking about the theory and the and the you know design ideas and he's you know done a lovely job of that so they're they're not scale and they're small but they're opposite ends of the spectrum as to what they can do you know they're the little chocolate can fly in almost nothing and the the nrg wing needs you know 20 knots to be working um in the glider world from there i've got whippets and i have a composite dlg model called a gladiator which is an old DLG model now, but again, I'm not flying competition, so I love, and again, that that pure feeling of DLG flying, of hooking into a thermal and specking out and then racing back to the field and going, oh, I've got lift, let's go again. You know, that that I love. That's a, a massive amount of pleasure I get from flying a DLG. Um, so next up from the DLG, what have we got? So we've got... Uh, or in between, so I have a, a thing. I think you've got an Ahi, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I've got an Ahi. Great plane. I absolutely love my RT. To me, the Ahi is the closest thing you can get to a shock flyer on the slope, you know, or a, or a foamy flatty. I just, they're magnificent. So then from there, we step up. So Ahi, Gladiator. Then probably I've got a couple of small um, 2.6, 2.7 meter aerobatic salto scale gliders. Oh, yeah. And they're and they're they're very much fun models, but one's an old Wick model from the seventies, and the other one is a a cheap fly fly or something like that. But it's like a lot of that uh, stuff. There was I think three variants of that model. One of them flew really well. The other two had flaws that made them not the nicest things to fly. I was lucky enough to get hold of a good one, and I love it. It's a good fun flying thing. Then I've got. Pike, which is set up for GPS, and I love that. That that was a model that uh, I made out of. Again, I, I because I do things on a budget. I didn't go looking for the latest and greatest. I looked at and spoke to John and said, 
what is a model that works as a sport class GPS model? And he said, pikes work great. So I went looking for pikes and I managed to source enough broken bits of pikes to build myself one good pike and I've got another one as a spare airframe out of, you know, whilst I was collecting bits. And in that, for GPS racing, you don't need the latest and greatest model to be able to A, just go and do it or even B, be competitive if you want to because you're not looking for out and out speed. It's really a lot more about the skill of the pilot being able to read the air and, and do it and get around. So that's the pike. Let's, I'm trying to think what's in there. Um, if I walk around my shed a little bit, so there's pike. Uh, more flying wings, and then we get into the scale, the larger scale stuff. So I have a third scale Fourvet, so which is a French um, V-tail semi-aerobatic glider from the late 50s, I think, was the design. Um, and mine was a third scale model built from scratch. Uh, fuselage was made by a friend of mine who used to scratch make moulds, and I bought a fuselage from him, and the rest is all you know, built from scratch, just using scale three views and things. Um, that one has uh, animated cockpit with working joystick, rudder pedals, all that sort of stuff, because I just like to tinker, as you see. Um, third scale, I have a Cirrus, um, which again, another scratch built model, um, came about because there was third scale Nimbus gliders here in Australia. And, and it's funny, you mentioned a lot of the things that I do myself uh, it was nice to hear that it's not just me. Sometimes I think I'm a bit of a nutter, but you know I read a lot. I when I decide I'm going to do something, I I research it and I go, right, I'm going to build one of these. What do I need to know about it? And what I discovered when I thought I wanted to build a Cirrus was that the full size Cirrus, the Nimbus glider, was developed out of a Cirrus, and they and literally they started with a full size Cirrus fuselage and they cut and shut it and they added a meter to the fuselage and they made a Nimbus. So I thought, well, I know somebody that's got a mould for Nimbus fuselages. I'll just buy one of his Nimbus fuselages and I'll cut it all up and I'll reverse engineer it into a Cirrus. And I spoke to him about it and he goes, oh, no, he said, that's a great idea. I love Cirruses. I'll do it. So he did. So he cut, he, he used his Nimbus mould, um, made a Nimbus fuselage, cut it all up, did the changes and laid up two Cirrus fuselages, um, one for himself and one for me. Um, and the one that I originally had is the one that is now in Melbourne owned by Daryl Doyle. Um, and the second one that he made for himself, I bought myself from him, oh man, a long time ago now. And again, we, we made um, plywood scun foam wings and that, that model is, is one of my favourites. I love it. It's, it's great fun. It's aerobatic, but it's thermals. I've sloped it, aerotoed it. There's nothing I'm not comfortable doing with it. Um, so that's so. What have we got to that? So then, the, in third scale, I've got a ASW fifteen, which is an Airworld model, all molded, um, hollow wings, hollow tails. Um, was was bought in by a friend from overseas many years ago, and I said to him, "Look, if you ever decide to get rid of it, um, let me know. I wouldn't mind buying it." And it was an untouched kit. You know, it had sat around for a very long time. Um, and he made me an offer I couldn't resist, so I had to buy them. But so the ASW15 is another one of my favourites. It, it it just has 
no bad manners. You know, you can throw it around like an aerobat, or you can go thermaling, or you know, it just it it ticks again a lot of boxes. Um, I did when when Dad passed away last year. I've sort of kept most of his models, that particularly the things that he built himself. So I have a quarter scale Raya that. I gave him the kit for his, I think it was his 70th birthday, or mum and I may have given it to him as a thing, but he built it, flew it for a number of years, and I've now got that here, cleaning it up and dusting it off and getting that ready to fly again. Um, now, all of those, I suppose, to help the people that don't know what these things are, all of the third-scale gliders, except for the Raya, which is quarter, um, are five-metre wingspan because they're third of a 15-metre sailplane uh, model. In third scale, I have a, a thing called a Haraka, which was built in Melbourne by Lenny Plummer, I think, from memory. Yep, oh, Lenny. yeah. They're great, right. those. those are, yeah. they're, just, they're just a work of art. I know the, another guy, yeah. Scott Matthews, built one. and um, That's right. Yep. And yeah, I, I, think, I think there was three in total that were built. Yeah, um, he, he built it. He called um, it his Bunnings built because he built all the wood from Bunnings and stuff to build it. But yeah. <laughs> it was I, when I first saw that model, all I thought of is I don't want to fly it. I just want to hang it up as an art yeah. piece because yeah. it was just beautiful to look at. Absolutely yeah, well, beautiful. I can't, leave, yeah, I can't leave well enough alone. So Lenny did a gorgeous job of building it. Uh, he covered it in I forgot the name of the covering, but it's the it's the lightweight one that's a bit like Solartex, but it's the one used in full size aircraft. Um, so when I got it here, I added extra cables to all the control runs and things so that the joystick and the rudder pedals and all those things are actually connected to the controls. Um, added an extra servo to the root rib up inside the wing so that the there's a bell crank behind the pilot on the full-size glider that is what drives the ailerons and so I've made all of that stuff work so that when it when it's flying or even when it's sitting on the ground, the, the pilot can operate the stick and it looks like mm, he's actually yeah. flying. And it's and it's an all an open cockpit, so that's you know why that's done. Um, and I suppose that you know I like to think of myself as a builder, but I've bought a couple of models over year over the recent times because they were on my bucket list. But I knew I was probably never going to get to it. And when these things come up, it's like you know what I can tick that off the bucket list as a model that I've got known and add it to the collection and it fits that, you know, that, that part of the, the range that I wanted to have. And, and certainly the, the Haraka is one of those. I always wanted a primary glider and now I've got one and I, and I love it and I've personalised it by, you know, I hand-painted. There's a little um, Hiawatha character on the rudder that I, I painted on. I, I found the photos of one in a museum and went, that's, that's cool, I'm going to do that. Um, and then we get to... We'll just call it Big Bertha. So I have a um, there's a there's a aerobatic vintage sailplane called the LO100, which was a design in the 50s in Germany, um, and it was the benchmark aerobatic sailplane for probably 20 years in competition full-size aerobatic gliders, probably the extra or the laser in in powered thinking. But the the LO100 is a uh, Quite small glider by full size standards. It's 10 meter wingspan, just under 10 meters long at full size. And I always wanted one. It was on that sort of bucket list. You know, I always wanted an LO100. I've watched hours and hours of videos and documentaries on the um, full size LO100 and on aerobatic gliders. And all that. So I always wanted one. 
and I was approached by Andy Smith in Melbourne, and he and he said, "Oh, you messaged me once and said you'd like to build an LA100 at third scale." I said, "Yes, I, I would love to do that." And he says, "Oh, he says, you sure I can't twist your arm to go a bit bigger?" And I said, "Why?" And he says, "Oh, because third scale was only sort of 3.3 meters. You know, it's not a very big model." And he, and he twisted my arm, and I said, "Oh, what the hell? I've got other five meter gliders. Why not?" So he supplied me at a, at a very reasonable price the, a prototype kit for his half-scale LO100 and and I built it and I've flown it and I love it but I don't fly it often enough because a, a half-scale model like that is a real commitment to go and fly and yeah of all the projects that I've done over the years I don't regret it but I don't say gee I wish I could do that again I you know that one a lot of work and it doesn't get flown enough. That's probably the big issue. If it, if I had the ability to get out and fly it a lot more, I, I, I'd probably be happier. Um, in in gliders on my bench right now, I have a John Copeland Fox. So John Copeland used to produce kits under the name of Composite Scale Models, and this is a model that was, I believe, it was owned by one of the guys in New South Wales, and it, and it was crashed, really, really badly crashed, and a local modeler here had it for years, kicking around in his shed as a smashed up, just smashed up fuselage. There was nothing else um, with it at all. Um, I purchased that, and it was actually going to be for Hamish. He he always wanted an aerobatic glider, and he said, you know, Dad, we, we could fix this up, and his interests sort of wandered off other areas and this fuselage sat around forever. And then I came across the Solo Fox, which the designer of the full-size Fox glider built for himself one and one only single-seat version of the two-seat aerobatic glider Fox and called it Solo Fox. And because I like my models to be a bit different to what everybody else has got, I thought, well, I think I can modify this busted fuselage and turn it into a... Solo Fox. So Solo Fox has got retracts. It's got a single smaller canopy than the big Fox. Um, and so it's taken a lot of work. But I was partway through that modification when one of my flying mates said, do you want to sell me that project and then help me do it? So that's what we're doing. So that's on my bench. And he comes over once a week and spends, you know, a few hours with me. And 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 we work on it. And, and it's, it's now a complete... Almost done, almost ready for primer fuselage with a rudder on it, sitting on the bench. And we've now got to go off to another buddy with a CNC foam cutter and get some wings and tails cut for it so we can build the wings. Next to that on the bench is an aeroplane that, I don't know, have you seen this one? There's an aeroplane that I, I hope you're going to like. There's a super chipmunk sitting on my bench. No. Yeah. Oh, that's a glider. It's a glider. Yeah. So... Um, a very clever man called Owen Hedger up in, I think he's up near Newcastle or Sydney somewhere, at northern New South Wales. Um, he, he and I were chatting at dinner at the Manila Slope Fest and he said, oh, you know, Lex, what, what, what would you want to build as a PSS model? And I said, I've always wanted to do a super chipmunk. And he said, nah, why would you do that? It's got undercarriage, you know? And I said, no, it doesn't. I said, the, real, the original super chipmunk had retracts. He said, so what's better? You have an aerobatic glider that can look scale with the undercarriage tucked away. You know, you can't have an extra or a... None of those things can be made into a slope sawer without compromising the shape, whereas a super chipmunk 
can be done. You know, you can do do one with three tracks. And so Owen, after that conversation, went away and through a long process, I won't go through all of that, but he, he used a 3D printer and he came up with a plug and his own design and made a mould and supplied me with a fuselage. And, and it's beautiful. So when people do things like that and I feel that I've had some involvement in it, I, I get even more invested in it. And this one I've now, just today, I started mucking around and I've got a servo-driven sliding canopy because I love the fact that Art Scholl used to do a waving flyby with the canopy open. So don't think I'm going to animate the pilot. It's a bit small for that, but I'm certainly going to have a pilot in there representing Art and the canopy is going to be able to be opened and closed in flight just because. Why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's cool. Um, so that, that will have all of the Pennzoil and all the markings and things. The other cool part is the early retractable undercarriage Super Chipmunk didn't have as much of that advertising you were talking about. It's still very recognisable, still, you know, red, white and blue stars and bars and all that sort of stuff, but it just doesn't have quite as many of the little tiny stickers all over. So that's that's kind of nice. Um, and then in the other corner, another project that's still in the build is I've got a... Uh, it started life as a Rosenthal out of Germany, ASK-13 two-seat um, classic glider. And that'll be a bit over six-metre span. Wings are built. They're sitting in a box um, outside. The fuselage is eh, not far off of being able to be primed and painted. All the tail surfaces are built. But again, uh, one of the other attractions to me about scale gliders is these huge canopies where you can see the whole pilot from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And so that, to me, is blank canvas. That's like, I can have so much fun. So the K13 I've made... It was a fiberglass fuselage, but the real aeroplane is a um, tube and fabric glider. So I've replicated all of the interior structure out of dowel and wood and aluminium and made the checker plate panels that go under the pilot's heels. And just I've had a lot of fun. And that when I, when I do things like that, I start thinking back to that K-13 that I saw nearly 50 years ago that, that John Gottschalk built. And I go, ah. Oh, I always thought that thing was magic, so I want to have a go at building a magic K13. So there's a lot of that sort of motivation from history, I suppose, where it's things that have burnt in my mind over you know, nearly 50 years in the hobby, and I go, I want to leave that mark on someone. You know, I want to have a glider that they come to the field and they go, wow, one day I'm going to have a glider like that. You know, that 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 I think is a lot of the driving force to me. I I have been so lucky to be around so many people in my life in the hobby that I want to give it back a bit as well. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Like, I think that I'd love to see more of those special gliders in a field, and we don't see it enough. But what's interesting to me is from a young age reading the Airborne magazine, South Australia, in my mind, whether it's true or not, but at least it is in my mind, South Australia is gliding mecca. It's it's the place where, you know, there seems to be a, a quite a strong gliding movement in South Australia. Now, okay, there's in Victoria where I am, there's plenty of people who fly gliders and that kind of stuff. But do you think that's correct that, you know, you've got some really good gliding clubs there and, um, yeah, you know, sure. events and things like that. Do, do you really think that South Australia is, is, is the mecca? And I envy you guys because it seems like you've got 
plenty of slopes to go and do slope soaring off. But is it a good place yeah, to go look, gliding? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a, there's a few thoughts about that too. Um, very, very deliberately, um, Mike O'Reilly and, and the group from the SSL, um, I, I can't remember which one, they sort of blur a little bit, but there was a period of time where the F3B competition pilots, as an example, were going to world championships having never really flown together as a team. And any event where it really needs to be a good, solid bunch of people all flying together is the way to succeed. You know, you've got to support each other, coach each other, help each other, all that sort of thing. And and Mike very, I think, cleverly recognised that. And uh, he was instrumental in basically setting about to make South Australia the place where the F3B team came from by going to all of the team selection events as a already organised team to go there and win the events and become Australia's best to go away as Australia's best. Whereas before that, it was all, you know, it was the, be the best sort of pilots in the country from each, you know, there's one from each state sort of thing. And they were the best when you looked at it that way, but they weren't the best team because they couldn't all support each other. They weren't flying together every weekend. They weren't. So I think, I think that had a big positive effect on making South Australia uh, sort of the home of model gliding in a lot of ways. I mean, I think VARMS um, have done an amazing job for the model glider world uh, around Australia. And I, and I think probably Heathcote um, up in Sydney also uh, have had great history in it. One of the things that, thinking about your question, back in uh, 1998, so you say about South Australia and reading the magazines and all that sort of thing. Back in 98, uh, a good friend uh, and I had been organising the Border Town Model Glider Regatta or being part of that organisation, really. I shouldn't say we organised because we weren't there from the... Well, we were going to them from the start, but we weren't the organisers from the start. But we had watched it go from sort of in the early 90s, it was a bunch of us from Adelaide going down to the Border Town Gliding Club, getting together and having a weekend of aero towing just because it was somewhere different to go. By the time 98 came around, um, he and I were driving home from the event and I rang him and I said, there's all this stuff going on about the year 2000. You know, year 2000 is going to be it for so many things, but nobody's actually tapped into that from an error modelling point of view. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, why don't you and I, and it was very much this conversation, it was why don't you and I see if we can make the Border Town 2000 event the biggest gathering of model scale gliders ever held anywhere in Australia. What we achieved was actually the biggest model glider gathering, scale model glider gathering, probably in the world up to that point. It was massive. You know, we, we set out to have 100 entrants and we got over that. I mean, we got to about 120 entrants. Um, the... South Australia was never the focus as far as trying to make it the home for gliding, but what we found was, or what, what our mission was in all of that, was to try and build a national interest group so that 
every single person from every single state in Australia wanted to be at Border Town 2000. And I think we achieved that. You know, that, that to me was huge. You know, it was run at Border Town. We, we had MAAA funding to bring out the great Chris Williams um, and he did a talking tour around the country um, at clubs talking about the history of scale gliding um, and, and his involvement. Um, so again, VAMS have a, a really great core group of scale glider guys. Heathcote guys did, Queensland there was a few. Um, but South Australia was probably more just the driving force. You know, we were the guys that went, let's try and make this something really special. And Border Town 2000 to me will probably be a highlight of my modelling life, you know, to, to turn up at an event that you had a dream to do and to see, you know, what, what turned out to be hundreds of people. You know, the, the, the television station um, turned up. They Because we were doing promotion through the tourism network, um, the, the, the tourism commission came and said, oh, we think you should run a television commercial to promote this event. And we went, nobody does that for error modelling. Why would you want that? And they're like, well, because if you do that, we can give you some more money from tourism, help you make the event even greater. And so we went, okay, let's do that. And so one of, one of our modellers who was good with a camera and good with an editing suite made a really great commercial that went to air all over the Wimmera region of Victoria because it was the South Australian Victorian tourism people that were helping us promote in that area. Um, it's, it, yeah, it was really quite an amazing event. And it's, it's a little bit of a shame that we're now 20 odd years down the track and there's probably more scale glider guys in the country now than there was when we did that 20 years ago. But the, uh, the national feeling has gone again. And I'm not sure that we can ever get that back. We, we've had discussions and I just don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I'd, I'd love to see Border Town as a, a great event again. And there was talk about making an anniversary event. Mike O'Reilly and a couple of the others of us had talked about, you know, can we do something to celebrate that it's 20 years since that Border Town event? But then, of course, COVID in the way. There's another thing I mentioned this earlier that I wanted to cover before we finish, mm -hmm. and that is um, it seems as if you and your dad have dabbled in the industry side of uh, of the uh, hobby. You mentioned having a shop, mm -hmm. and, and there was also a magazine uh, as well. Yeah. Tell me about those exercises, starting out with what happened first, the magazine or the shop, or you know, the shop led to a magazine or, or what? Okay, so... So you probably have to go back a long way with Dad and go back into the 60s. And in the 60s, Dad was involved in slot cars, right? so slot car racing and set world records and was certainly at the centre of all of the marketing and all of the, the magazine stuff and, and ran commercial slot car centres as an employee here in Adelaide. So he had a background in the slot car hobby as a, a retail sort of industry person as well. He is involved in building the tracks, all of that sort of thing. So there was a bit of a natural progression when he got back into the hobby as a modeler, as an era modeler. Um, he he was known uh, in 
in so many circles, you know, like it, we lived in Sydney in the early 70s and uh, he knew the guy who started the original Airborne, whose name escapes me right this minute, but he was killed in a plane crash. Um, and so dad, dad was a contributor to the first few editions of Airborne before he was killed. And so he had that sort of background with the magazine right from then. Um, the the magazine he didn't start, or he and Mum, you know, they they started it from nothing in nineteen late nineteen seventy nine. I think the first issue came out around the end of seventy nine, early nineteen eighty, and th and that was a case of um, career change. You know, Dad had Dad had worked in the transport industry for twenty years. Um, it's time for a change. He wanted to do something different. He'd been a motorsport photographer part time for. Oh, since the probably the late 50s, really, right through until the 80s, he'd been um, a motorsport photographer, shooting everything from speedboat racing to, um, you know, touring cars to motorbikes to go-karts to all of that sort of thing. And, he'd, and, he'd, and his brothers and he were all heavily into motorsport. So there was that connection to publishing through motorsport photography. And the initial magazine that he started themselves, so Australian Radio Control Modeler, came out of a conversation that one of the um, motorsport magazine publishers actually ran past him and said, we have done our research and we don't think that Australia has a fantastic era modelling magazine and we think you'd be the guy that could head it up for us. And Dad said, well, I've got a career, I've got you know long service leave and all this sort of thing up. I said, I don't, I don't think I should really you know, do that at this stage. And... A few years later, when he decided it was time, he, he contacted them back and said, you know, you haven't done anything, are you still keen? And they said, yes. And they had meetings. And in the end, Dad decided, well, between Dad and Mum, I must say, because Mum was very involved in the magazine as well, they, they decided that it was a lovely offer to be offered, you know, this role to work for a publishing company producing magazines about the hobby that you love. But Dad didn't feel that it was going to be his magazine. You know, he felt that it was going to be still driven by a major publishing company the way they wanted to do it. And, you know, he just sort of thought, no, nah, it's not, not really how I want to go. So he said to the publishing company, thanks very much, you know, for everything you've done. Um, but I think we'll actually have a go at this ourselves. And they did. And this is where the, the first issues of the magazine um, was pre computer typesetting. So you're talking, everything was typed out by mum, sitting in a, you know, brother golf ball typewriter, typing it all out, carrying that to a typesetter who then inputted it all again. And then we got back these rolls and rolls of waxed paper. I don't know if you've ever seen a magazine produced that way, but you, um, all of the text for the magazine comes on one roll. So the column inches are literally just a big roll of words and you've got to go through and cut it out with a scalpel and they used to get stuck on pages and that's what went off to the printer. And that was all done in-house. You know, the, the typesetting was the only thing done outside of the house I grew up in. So, um, you know, new products would turn up. They would turn up at home and Dad would, you know, quite often say, here, hold this, I need a hand take the pictures. Um, you know, my first power model, so after having the saw birdie and being a glider guy for quite a long time, my first power model was a 20-sized Blue Angel 
that was a review a review model for the magazine. Hmm. You know, we, we built it. It was a review model. That's what I learned to fly power with. It was a, a 20 size pattern ship with an OS 25 FSR in it. Um, and so the, the magazine went from that pretty humble beginning. You know, mum's brother is a graphic designer, so he did the, the artwork that was used, all the sort of um, template artwork, if you like, and, and mum and dad ran with it, and they built that up from that one magazine. By the time they closed it all up, uh, 15 years, I think, 14, 15 years from start to finish, by the time they closed it all up, they had three magazines. They had Australian Radio Control Modeler, Australian Car Modeler, and uh, they had a static model magazine. I can't think of the name of it. Um, doesn't matter. I can't think what that went. But that, so, and the, and the static model magazine that came out from Mum was the person who was ringing around all the hobby shops, all the um, the interested people, you know, and saying, "Get it generating the stuff for the car modeling magazine." And what she found is she had so much material that couldn't fit in a magazine that was trying to do everything for the car modeler that they set about and did a model, you know, model car collectors magazine. Gee, like having having dabbled in the magazine space with Flat Out RC, I tell you what, it's hard work, and I don't know how they could produce three. It's like oh, I was having enough trouble doing one. Yeah, look, it was it was crazy. I mean, I would, um, I would go to the printers with either their car or my car, and we would load it up to to the roof, you know, probably on the suspension stops with just the subscription copies and the hobby shop copies, and Gordon and Gotch did all of the major distribution you know, around Australia to the news agents and things. But just that job alone, I mean, we, we would come home from the printers and as you would have known, the, the deadlines and stuff of promising to have a magazine out, I, I would come home with a carload of magazines and we'd unload it onto the lounge room floor and sit there and bundle them up yeah. into IPEC bags and, you know, and then go through and I'd sit down with a great big pile of manila envelopes and put everybody's subscription yeah. no, we that. in the envelope and send it off. And it, it was huge. Um, I, I, lo I loved and was very proud of what mum and dad did with all of that. It was amazing. But it um, to lead into your question about what came first, so yeah, there was a background in the hobby. Dad had been, he was always one of these people that was in the thick of it. Um, he was an FAI observer. So when people wanted to set world records, he was the person that got the call, you know, can you come and observe these records? And he observed... Um, one of our close friends set three model helicopter world records in 1980. That was huge, you know, that, that were world records. And so because he was in that sort of stuff, the magazine was almost a natural progression that all he really had to do was talk about what he was into, and that was enough interest for everybody because it covered such a broad um, spectrum of stuff, you know, it was just huge. Um, but the magazine led into... The, his shop, so well, he, he was in a, um, uh, a partnership with a, with a guy who was actually a writer for the magazine. And when the magazine was all closing up and Dad was like, well, I need to do something else, they had a, they had a chat and said, well, let's open a hobby shop. So they opened a hobby shop. And really Dad only got out of that for, for health reasons. You know, he had a stroke and some other things that they're just health reasons. So... He didn't get out of it again. He he went on, became the Dawn Trading Rep for South Australia, and uh, got a funny feeling, probably Northern Territory, but certainly South Australia. And he was the Dawn Trading Rep as a as a wholesale rep. So he was still in the hobby even then. And 
when they moved to Canberra, um, he worked at Monaro Models with with Terry Griffiths, and he worked and he worked for Terry for basically the whole time. Oh, Terry actually, and now I've forgotten the name of the guy, and he'll he'll, he'll hate me because he used to come and visit me in the shop. But the guy that took over from Terry when he sold for a while, um, and Dad worked for him as well, and then worked for Terry afterwards. You know, so when they moved back to Adelaide, um, he worked part time in Model Flight as well. So yeah, he was there all the time. And then my shop, um, when when Dad had the initial shop after the magazine, I used to go and help out as a casual, you know, just pop in when I wasn't at work. At one point, I worked only a come, you know, kilometre away from the shop, so I'd often finish work at three o'clock in the afternoon, wander around to the shop, spend the afternoon at the shop till closing time, and then Dad and I had convoy home, you know, after work, quite often six, seven o'clock at night because we were. Hobby shops are like that. People don't go home. They hang around and chat. And, uh. <laughs> so I, I loved that. I loved that atmosphere. And I'd been in my career. Um, so what am I now? Let's say I'd been in my career probably 20 years. And I, I was starting to feel a bit burnt out and a bit, you know, this is. And and I, and I said to my wife, I, I think I really want to own a hobby shop. You know, I really, I feel that it's something I want to do. And. And we spent a couple of years trying to work out how to make that happen, and and we bought a business that um, we, I was a customer of. And it, there's so many factors, you know. There's a lot of things that um, meant that eventually we we closed up after about five years of running it ourselves. But it's it, it's a funny one for me. I have lots of great memories of being in the shop. There's obviously a bit of a bit of pain and a, and a bit of suffering that. We went through after having to make the decision to close it all up and move on and go back to the career that I was burnt out of <laughs> years before. But I, I'm glad I did it. You know, I'm I'm glad that I did it. I, I love the fact that a lot of my customers are still in contact with me now. You know, a lot of people and they still ring me up. And, oh, look, I'm looking at buying this. What do you reckon? Should I? You know, and and I and that's probably the only part of being. The business itself that I miss, I, I really do miss that interaction with passionate modelers, so, um, from every level, from the from the passionate guy that's just just learning to fly, through to the guy that, um, you know, has been has been flying for fifty years and still loves the hobby. I, I love every everyone in the middle. So, being in the shop was a lovely environment. It just it's it's not the dream. Uh, even nowadays, you know, I admire anyone that's trying to run a hobby store because there's a lot more competition. We've got the online, the global marketplace. People can buy from overseas, that kind of thing. That it's just it's just tougher than ever. I I dabbled in it a, a little bit myself and and loved the people that I met. Still got great friends as a result of some of the customers that I sold to. Uh, but it's. Um, it's a pretty pretty tough job at the moment, um, and I oh. think we're seeing like when I had the magazine, one of the challenges I had was just trying to get advertising, and and the, the fact of the matter was there wasn't a lot of money flying around in the industry that you no. know, enough to to pay for an ad in a magazine. There's a, there's a few companies that do do reasonably okay, but then mm. there's a whole bunch that are sort of hanging on. Uh, yeah. and and some of them are diversifying. We see some of them move into you know either more general toys, Lego, that kind of thing, where it's yeah. quite profitable. 
but it's yeah, it's just a changing, uh, changing of the guard in a kind of way. Now we're almost there. Like oh, my battery's going flat in my recording device, so that's giving me the hurry up. But there's a question. There's a, we've covered. It's been awesome. We've covered so much ground, and and me just sitting back here and listening to your story is exactly what I aim to get out of these podcasts is to hear people's stories, and it's you know it's keeping me engaged. I'm just I'm just sitting and listening and thinking this is great. And I'll tell you what. I'm really keen on this scale glider thing at the moment. I don't know. I'm <laughs> literally fighting it because a friend of mine has one for sale and uh, I kept on saying to him, I love that model. And um, I don't know. He actually sent me a message whilst we were in the recording and I was like, his name comes up. Maybe that's an omen. I need to buy it off him. But <laughs> It is addictive, that's for sure. You've owned a lot of models over the years. You've seen a lot of models. And this is the question that I ask everybody. And it's always yeah. the final question that I ask uh, people in uh, the Flat Out RC podcast, and that, what has been your favourite model? And I'm looking for one. I've been lenient sometimes and let people have two, but what is that one favourite model of yours? Okay. I, I can be I can be very cheeky on this one because I because I listened to the podcast, I knew the question was coming and I thought Good. about the answer. Signature move, this, this question. Yeah. And it, it actually is still three aeroplanes in my particular collection, but they're all the same aeroplane in different sizes. Oh, no. Loophole. Yep. He's found the loophole. But, yeah, I did. And, uh, and here it is, though, because I also I, – I do want to – I wanted to get this out there. Dad designed an aeroplane in his magazine days called the For Fun, and he set about designing it because – four-stroke model engines were just coming on the market as mainstream sort of right then. And he went, let's let's design a generic 40-size sport model around a 40-size four-stroke engine, which at that time was about as good as a 22-stroke. You know, it wasn't a good engine. They were, And the engine that he used in the first one was actually a Austrian HB49, which was... I think his words were it wouldn't pull the skin off a rice pudding. But that model, without any hesitation, is my all-time favourite aeroplane to fly, and I will encourage anyone, if you haven't flown one, you need to fly one. And I have the plans electronically, and uh, when Mum passed, uh, when Dad passed, sorry, Mum and I had quite a discussion as to how uh, we'd like to see him recognised. And and it is by that aeroplane, and we we want to set up a, a for fun, fun fly, mm. with the objective of seeing how many people will build a for fun from scratch, from plans that we're happy to supply. They don't have to buy them. We'll, I've got them electronically, so it's not a case of anybody making money out of it other than hobby shops, which is the big winner. You know, they can go and buy um, balsa. It's a it's a beautiful builder's model without being complicated, and that also highlighted dad dad was an extremely pragmatic person so uh, the wing is all balsa there's no hardwood in the wing, but it's a you can't break the wing in flight you know and everything about a for fun is is just beautiful um and that's why i say i have three i have dad's original prototype here which has now got a thunder tiger 54 four stroke in it um, Dad also built a two-thirds size electric one in his sort of later years, which I have. And then not that long ago, I built a half-size one using 
Horizon UMX gear in it, full hound, you know, flat, and it, sorry, alloy oh, yeah. rudder elevator throttle with the brushless gear out of a beast. Yep. That weighs about 90 grams ready to fly. Um, and the full fun is my answer. And I, <laughs> what, what mum and I would like to do is get an event rolling. I'd love to see it national because people did build four funds all over Australia. We just haven't worked out how to make that happen yet. But that's that's where we're going with it is we'd really like to try and uh, ha- have some sort of annual day for people to go and fly four funds and just get into the clubs. And, and, it, and it's just so multifaceted. It gets people building. It gets people flying. It gets people remembering Dad for what, everything that he was involved in through the hobby with the aeroplane that he was so proud of as well. You know, he he would go, when he lived in Canberra, you know, there was guys that would come up to him and say, oh, you know, what do you think of my four fun? And Dad would go, wow, that's cool. You know, like, and, and people did so many variations to it. A bit like the way ugly sticks get modified, four funds are the same. People build four funds and they put their own, touch to it and that's one of the other things that mum and I have said about uh, promoting this event for the for fun is to get people to appreciate it for that you know for the fact that they can do whatever they want with it they want to build a double size one go right ahead build a huge one you want to build a little tiny one do that mm. you know um, the plan works no matter what size you want to build it and that's another just great thing about it you know um, so that yeah definitely it, I had to I did. I did think about it. There were there were gliders, <laughs> you know. But the, the truth is, I will always own a four fun. If you, if you want to get that off the ground, and I can think I can help in any way. Please shout out. Don't mind helping at all. Sounds like that a good, good initiative. Good initiative. Um, I will, I was actually going to send you. I'm just sitting here looking at the computer right now, and I was going to send you a picture of a four fun. Um, actually, please do. I'll share it with everybody uh, on the on the on the Facebook page. Uh, Flat out asking yeah. Facebook page, yeah, so we can have a look at, look at what they are and uh, see what they're like. So that, that sounds good. Yeah, they are. They're really, really cool. And they, when I think back to three um, D as an example, the Four Fun was not designed to be a three D aeroplane, but it is without doubt the first aeroplane that I was able to fly, but also the first aeroplane I have seen fly like a full pattern schedule as a 40 size model in the area of you know most mown strips on on the average club oh, you know, yeah. so down low and and you can just chuck it around with it has no vices it doesn't doesn't drop a wing it doesn't snap it does everything it does it, it does so well you you can't it just doesn't have any bad habits and it builds so much confidence in people to fly it and fly it hard they really are amazing. That sounds cool. Well, Lex, it's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. We've covered a lot of stuff, and as I said, I've been just listening to it all and uh, just enjoying it as we you know as we're having a chat. And uh, I'm sure many other people will. A big thank you to you for for spending the time with us and telling us a story, and also all the stuff that you and the family we didn't even get to talk about Hamish and your involvement. We'll have to have you back at some time, at some point in time, set yeah. up to. But um, 
big thank you to to, to the, the whole Scott family for everything that you've done for Aero Mod League in Australia because it's, it's people like yourself and your dad and even Hamish that helps push and motivate people along in the journey. And uh, you know, I always enjoy seeing your Facebook page and seeing what you're up to and the models and what you're flying you're doing as well. Um, you know, we've never met, but I feel like I know you because you're there pushing the hobby and, and I, I enjoy seeing all the stuff. So a big thank you to, Alex, to you, Alexis. Oh, no, my pleasure. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having us on. That was great. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Thank you to Alexis for joining me, Alexis Scott. Great guy, uh, really enjoys his hobby. You know, he's one of those guys that's the hobby's been surrounded his life, it's meant a lot to him. And you can just see by the way that he talks, his family involvement in it as well. Uh, and it's always good to see we need those kind of people in our communities because they help push us along, they, they invest in the industry side of things, and they keep us motivated. And uh, I know I really enjoy seeing Alexis's posts on Facebook and the models that he's building or flying. Uh, so really enjoy that. And it was good to, uh, good to catch up with him as well on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, speaking of enjoyment, if you've enjoyed this podcast, give it a five-star rating so we can spread the love. Don't forget to subscribe. And whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, don't forget the Flat Out RC Instagram page, Facebook, and the YouTube channel as well. The YouTube channel's been suffering a bit because haven't been able to get out. A lot of lockdown. So, uh, but I've got a few things that I want to want to put on video. Um, working on a, a fun, fun project with a few young guys as well that hopefully we can get off the ground. So anyway... Flat Out RC just keeps on rolling along. Really good. Next week, we are talking aerobatics. Really good international guest coming on next weekend. A big name down here in the Southern Hemisphere in the aerobatics scene. A trailblazer, you could say. So stay tuned every week. The Flat Out RC podcast keeps on rolling on. Thanks for joining me. I will be back next week. Oh.